we have a, a unique opportunity to talk about uh, a collaboration between two universities, Tennessee and, and Michigan State, about a maybe the most noteworthy sporting event in the world, uh, the, the FIFA World Cup. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick this over to my colleague, John Sorokin, and he knows Dr. Rogers from Michigan State is with us today pretty well. And I'm going to let you guys uh, start in 1994 and get us to present day when it comes to World Cup. Go. <laughs> you see you too, Brandon. Because, um, uh, yeah, no, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, when you say 1994, it was actually, I think it was a little over 30 years ago, 31 years ago that, uh, Trey, you hired me to, uh, as, a, as an undergrad, just graduating from the two-year program at Michigan State to, you know, I came, I came to Michigan State in 91 wanting to be a, in the golf course architecture, get into construction, and maybe be a superintendent, and uh, a little project in 94 for the World Cup you had going on that you started in 92 and I asked if I could work for you and uh, you said yes go see John Steyer and that's where I got introduced to John Steyer and kind of went from there and it's, it's kind of hard to believe it was 31 years ago that I started to do that for you. Give me a <laughs> We're all getting old man. Time flies that's for sure. And uh, so you know and Brandon was just started on as a grad student at Michigan State right around then a year probably 94 you started right Brandon? Yeah, I was in 94. So we, we we built that. And, you know, who knew that, you know, 31 years later, um, we would be sitting here doing the same thing for what what this World Cup coming up in 2026 is going to be the largest uh, World Cup ever. The one that just ended in Qatar, they estimated that 5.4 or 5.8 billion people tuned in to the World Cup on television. So... That's that's big when we think, you know, 300 million people watched the Super Bowl. That's two thirds of the world was tuned into this. Um, but in 90, in two, 2022, it was 32 nations um, and it's going to expand to 48 countries. And in Qatar, they had eight stadiums that were 46 miles apart. Wow. So it was pretty easy to do that World Cup. We've got... Um, in this World Cup, we've got 16 stadiums that are 4,900 kilometers or 3,200 miles apart. So that's, that's, that's a big difference from 9,000 feet in Mexico City to sea level in Vancouver, in a temp indoors in Vancouver to outdoors in Seattle to sea level in Miami with hot climate. So then there's five dome stadiums that we've been charged uh, to do for this World Cup. And... Um, it's gone back since 2017 when I first talked to uh, Mr. Alan Ferguson with FIFA about this. And as, as this ballooned into what was going to be the World Cup, I thought, you know, Trey and I, um, it's, it's a big project. It's, it's, you know, more than, you know, one university could handle. And Michigan State University and the University of Tennessee seemed like a logical fit to bring back the, the knowledge of what happened before. Um, John Steyer, I know, is not on here, but he's really active with us doing this as well. But there's going to be all sorts of things from weed control, disease control in, the, in these dome stadiums that were going on. So, yeah, John, let, for, the, for those who might not be, those who are listening that might not be familiar, can, can you walk maybe the audience through what Michigan State and Tennessee have been charged to do? I mean, my understanding from, from a little bit of the outside looking in is that you, you and Trey are working collaboratively kind of under a, a banner of 
you have all these stadiums for the, the world, the world cup that's coming to the Americas in 2026. And you kind of have to have them all play the same, right. From a performance and safety standpoint. And there's a ton of hurdles in that, as you just alluded to with geography and whether it's a dome or not a dome, is that kind of the, the main aim of the project? Right. Um, and I'll, I'll let Trey chime in on this, but there's, they, they will not play on artificial turf. So world cup, at the highest level has to play on grass. The 16 stadiums that have been selected, half of them are currently artificial turf. And of those eight that are artificial turf, five are indoors. So the, the challenge that we've been charged with um, at the University of Tennessee and Michigan State is how do we make 16 stadiums that we know are in completely different climatic kind of conditions or micro environments play the same for player to surface interactions, whether they're running and cutting to the ball bounce and ball roll, because we know that, you know, unlike it's a, it's a ball to surface sport as well. That's a, it's vital. So that's, that's the charge that's been put on to us um, by FIFA to, to, to kind of figure out. Trade, yeah. Well, I, I also think that um, one of the big differences between the first time that we got involved in 94, the, um, FIFA was just the entity and the host country was in charge of putting together everything. So the state of Michigan actually ended up supporting a whole lot of the research that was necessary. I see a lot of parallels of what we're doing now, except the differences are that FIFA has kind of changed the way they do things and they're kind of supporting the research that's necessary uh, to try to, you know, get through this. Um, also, as you know, John, FIFA really doesn't know this country. Alan Ferguson doesn't know it very well. The people that are with him don't know it very well. And it's, the more that they uh, get to learn about this tiger by the tail that they've grabbed, uh, the more that they're realizing that this is a big, big project. And, um, you know, we've spoken a lot about the stadiums, but as you know, when we have our weekly calls, we also eventually start talking about all the training sites that have not necessarily been identified by FIFA yet, but they'll be close to, uh, you know, well, about a hundred of them by the time we're done, and maybe even a few more, depending on how you do your math. So there's a lot of fields, a lot of uh, fields that are going to have to be uh, re-turfed at the very least. Some will have to have some updates so that they'll meet the standards for the uh, practice. So it's a big project that has a potential to leave a tremendous legacy in North America. And I think that's a big key is the legacy. You know, this is this is the first time FIFA's, um, like Trey mentioned, is supporting research. So it's been an education going back and forth with the universities, working with FIFA, going down the road of, you know, what they're investing in is, you know, this is a big commitment, like, and it's it's going to leave a long-term effect of we're we're going to identify some pretty new, not not really totally new. But there's but just different ways of establishing and, and performing and playing turf uh, on grass, the soccer, and it with the with the sod, the big roll sod technologies that will be a legacy that could be going forward that would leave options for potentials for these dome stadiums to have grass in them for other events, not just soccer. So has that been the first step to look at 
basically sod production, knowing that there's going to be such a need for sod across such a wide geographic area and ways to get the sod to be produced to do what you want it to do? Is that is that like the first foray into the work? Well, we went to Nashville. The TPI was in Nashville in February. And uh, John got us in the audience or got us in as a to make a presentation. And we thought that there might be 10, 12, 15, 20 sod farmers in the room to listen to what we had just because of the potential and the and what was going to happen. And I think there was about 300 people in the room from the sod industry. If you know anything about the sod industry, to get 300 people to do anything, particularly if there's nothing free about it, they're not coming. So uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's Jim. You're right. It's it's going to come too. That's a lot of sod that needs to be produced. Um, that's at the highest quality on sand-based um, sod, so that's going to be well drained. That could be level for sports fields. And like Trey said, there's there's 48 countries, so each country has a base camp, what they call a base camp, where they train. So they'll have one or two pitches or fields that they'll have to train on. So that right there is 40. 48 times two pitches. That could be 90, 96 different pitches for practicing for the base, the national teams. Then the referees also have a base camp. So that's another one or two fields. So that could be 98 fields just there. Then the 16 stadiums, then each of the 16 stadiums has to have at least two fields for, for training, for pregame training for teams coming into those trainings. So that's, that's a lot of fields. I think we add up 154 sometimes when we count those numbers. And to make your head spin even further, uh, for at least for the stadiums, right after that, the National Football League starts, so they may want new fields after that. So the pressure on the sod industry is going to be pretty high, and if I was a golf course needing sod, I'd probably buy mine pretty quick. <laughs> That's a pretty good message for many in the southeast right now with the winter kill and delayed greenup issues. I know that's on first and foremost on people's minds. So, you know, knowing the geographic range, they're obviously not all going to play on warm season grass or cool season grass. It's going to be a little bit of both, right? Right. So then walk the audience through, you got to get them to play the same, right? Like, what does that mean? How do you, how do you determine if a Bermuda grass field in Miami and a bluegrass field in, in Massachusetts plays the same? How, how do you guys think you're going to go about doing that? Well, I think what's going to happen is this is going to really allow the work that uh, the University of Tennessee has been doing over the last half dozen or 10 years to really come to the forefront. You know, oftentimes you do work and you don't you don't uh, see that it'll come to fruition or you don't see where the where it will uh, pay off. But this is where it's going to pay off in spades right here and that the work that, that John and, and Kylie Dixon have done and, and others is really gonna pay off because I think they're gonna be able to quantify some of these differences and really make um, FIFA, they're gonna make FIFA look good. That's what it's gonna do. Hey, John, do you have the 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 map, the slide with the map of I all do. The I do, I do, I do. We both do, you wanna bring it up, Trey? Go ahead. Yeah. What is it you want, Brandon? Well, I just, I was, I was just gonna say just, you know, It'll, it'll give the audience a visual of like what this looks like across North America, right? And then when we yeah. think about these different stadiums and the different climatic regions, like 
I remember when you were working on the Olympics, we, we talked about, you know, the weather in, in Beijing, for example, and, and how the summers were like, you know, Tennessee, the winters were like Michigan, it like it spanned like multiple different climatic zones and so like that's why i was going to say so three climatic zones but when you think about like these indoor stadiums and things like is it are there are there more than three climatic zones in terms of the weather and the the way these grasses will perform or or how do you think that that will ultimately end up kind of playing out well we we kind of think that because dallas houston and atlanta are all in um all in uh, indoors with air conditioning, that they'll probably be a little similar. And, and SoFi, which is out there in Los Angeles, um, that one has no air conditioning at all. It's actually almost open to the air, but LA doesn't have any humidity. So I don't know what's gonna happen there. So that's a good question. John's been to Vancouver. It's a relatively old stadium, but uh, I think they put a lot of updates there, but. I, you know, we, we've been tossing around that Dallas and Houston will likely be paying up playing on a cool season grass, Brandon. Okay. Because of the indoor and the climate control and the low light and the, you know, why, why do you want to heat it, heat things up inside for the Bermuda grass? You really don't. Right. right. So and, you know, Bermuda grass is already challenging in shade compared to bluegrass. So in a, in right. a situation where it's, 70 degrees you know that that's kind of good climate for bluegrass blue rye mix right more right. than it would be bermuda grass and when and you that's guys why we need our, that's why we're waiting on our buildings to be built so we can uh you know do some of this the other thing that i i think was going to happen and you know it's still a rumor out there but i think that the 25 they're going to have a uh, in 2025 they're going to see a lot of test runs in a lot of these stadiums because i think they're going to have a fifa club world cup event and the rumor is that they're you use a lot of these stadiums so that too jim will put a lot of pressure on the side industry because they'll bring it in and they'll take it back out again and probably won't reuse it and you, you talk, Trey, about, you know, cool season turf and those dome stadiums in, in Dallas and Houston and Atlanta. And in 94, when you did this, I don't, I mean, Atlanta was probably a dome, but I don't remember. I mean, was it the same where you were cool season turf there? Was it cool season yep. turf across the board or was there a split with warm season turf in 94 or how did that work? Well, there were nine sites and um, there was only three dome stadiums in 1994. Um Houston, Atlanta, I'm sorry, Houston, New Orleans, and Detroit. Everybody else was open air at the time. And uh, so all these dome stadiums that people are aware of have been built since then. Um, um, Los Angeles was Bermuda grass, New York City, which was also a temporary field that had been brought in, was also Bermuda grass. Um, but the difference here, again, Jim, is that how fast or um, how long do you want this in for? You know, it's one thing to tell somebody, well, we'll start putting it in in February and the games will be in June and bring us a bunch of lights and we'll keep the grass alive. That's very expensive. That's very expensive. And then if you want to do it again in 2025, you're asking a stadium to throw away a lot of revenue for concerts and everything else. 
So what we've really been charged with is how to make this as simple and temporary as possible. And if we can be successful, that's simple and temporary and safe, but that's automatic. You know, it's got to be successful. It's got to be safe. But if we can be temporary and we can be simple, then we have something to maybe offer some of these dome stadiums for other sports that we have, particularly the National Football League. So it's quite um, opportunistic. We've got a lot of opportunity. The other thing that's really exciting for us is um, that you just don't get this kind of research for sports turf very often, this level. You know, when you're talking about seven figure level research, um, it just doesn't happen very often for sports turf. So I think I speak for John and I think I speak for all of the people that are working with this is we feel a pretty good responsibility to, you know, push things forward for the whole turf industry. And uh, we're very excited about it. No, I mean, it's definitely a, a huge endeavor and exciting to to watch it happen. Um, you know, John, I mean, is there any particular part of, of what we've talked about that you think has you the most excited in terms of whether it's the, the process of, you know, getting the SOG established close by to a location and having it available for a quick install? I mean, it, what what part of it gets you the most excited? Yeah, I think it's the orchestration of 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 all of of bringing this all together because we're 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 working with you know getting back to the sod production. We're looking at trying to get sod production in in three countries as well, and so you know Mexico is it's a whole other one. So we have the language barrier. I think the biggest thing that gets me excited is the 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 technicians and the graduate students and the undergraduates that we've got involved in this and the experience they're getting from it because I was in their seat you know, 30 years ago doing this. And I never envisioned that I would be where I'm at as a professor at the University of Tennessee today. And it, it really all started from that opportunity to get to work on the 94 World Cup. And when, when that ended, John Steyer looked at myself and Brian Horgan and told us that we need to go to grad school. And and we were both undergrads at the time. And, you know, and we all know Brian Horgan as well and been very successful successful and he's at Michigan State now again and I, I just think that's what gets me really excited is what these next two and a half three years are going to bring for for all the students but then the orchestration of putting on such a big event and being a part of that is is is, is the big part so how do you envision dividing and conquering if you will I mean I imagine with such a big ge geographic footprint mm -hmm. there's got to be multiple visits to multiple locations I mean, will you and Trey be working with, say, the sod producers, you know, from a from even from a pre-plant? Like, what's the pre-plant fertility look like? What's the weed control program and establishment look like if there's disease issues that's being grown in? I mean, will it be granular down to that level of from when the grass is planted into install? Is that the workflow? So, yes, but one of the things that you haven't mentioned yet is all of this sod will be grown on plastic. Okay, nothing is conventional. We're not. We don't envision any conventional side at this point. Um, where we're so this is where a lot of our research is going. Whether it be looking at species, uh, uh, composition, fertility, establishment, and uh, it's you know what's challenging is 
there are several farms, when I say several, let's say there's six people that I think are pretty darn good at growing sod on plastic. But we need 12. So that means you got to teach six. And there, that's probably the biggest challenge right there is teaching someone the intricacies of growing sod on plastic because there's there's a lot of things that are kind of counterintuitive and uh it so it gets it it has some uh it has a lot of challenges so let's go to school here trey what are some of the things that are counterintuitive for growing sod on plastic because my guess is a lot of the folks listening might not have any familiarity with sod on plastic at all well the first thing that's counterintuitive is that um you have a piece of plastic that you are growing your grass on right and so when you lay down an inch of sand everything stops right there whether that be the fertilizer or the roots or so this now means particularly initially as hard as grass is to establish initially you can multiply it by 10. the other thing is is that while you might think this grass will be six, eight months before, or 10 months before it's ready, it could be ready in four. So these are things that are just not things that you would normally think about. So you have to wrap your mind around the fact that um, I have to um, think differently when I'm, when I'm, and you know, Sod Farm, you say, well, let's lay a piece of plastic out on a hard surface that I have prepared that I want that surface to be so hard that I could drive a semi over. Now, where in agriculture do we do that? <laughs> so about counterintuitive. <laughs> so this is this is just it is just um, you know, and the people that do it, and uh, Chad Price at Carolina Green, Eric Holland at Precision Turf, the guy in Foley, Alabama, out West Coast. You know, there's a half a dozen, you know, but they've taken, they've, it's been quite challenging for them to get to that point. Now, I know there's a lot of great sod farmers out there that just haven't been asked to do that yet. And, but they're going to. And um, I think John was really wise to get us started there at TPI. I think they're coming up in July to Michigan, have another look around. So uh, we're getting there. We're getting so, there, but it's about time to rock and roll. So to that to that point, so how big how big is John? Re remind me how big a soccer field is, approximately. You know, you, you've got about sixty eight meters wide, so you know seventy five oh. yards wide by one hundred and ten yards long. So two acres. Yeah, two two and a half acres of, and one hundred fifty four fields. So you need like almost 400 acres worth of production of sod on plastic today with those six growers tray. What's the, what's 200. the 200? So about half. So like you were saying, so you need about six more people that are capable or six more farms at the same level of production at the same high level of, of, you know, product. Maybe quality. more than six, Brandon, maybe right. 10, maybe 15, who knows? Right. But yeah. Because you need about you need about double the production that currently is produced, and that's that's annual production about two hundred acres. Yeah, and that's that's a guess by me. Right. Yeah. So then, if you 
largest sod farms probably only 70. Right. And so then if you think about 2025 and 2026, then. Yeah, 2025 won't need, need as many because it'll only be the right. stadium. Right. 26 will be the 25 and 26 is where they'll be adding the. So, yeah. to, Brandon, you also got to think about all you're really money. doing is making my head hurt. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Brandon, you got to think about all the NFL stadiums and college stadiums that do resodings with, with the same stuff, with the same right. side. Right. So, yeah. That's a lot of inventory that needs to be produced. Um, yeah, because that's because that, that's the other thing too, right? Is that this isn't happening in a vacuum where everybody else goes, "Hey, we don't need any sod." Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Baseball, Major League Baseball. That's yeah. a lot of plastic. I mean, you think that much plastic over that much acreage. I mean, that's a lot of plastic. Mm -hmm. Trey, you said something that got my curiosity up about faster establishment on plastic that you it might establish quicker. What what is your? Why would that be? When you um, do get this inch of sand down and then you seed and then you get establishment, those roots go down to the plastic and then they start growing laterally, right? And as they grow laterally, they add strength. And so the maturity oftentimes for sod farmers is not what you see on top, it's what you see below because they can't quote unquote use the term lift it. And so they have to wait till the rhizomes or the stolons are strong enough to lift. Now the roots are helping you lift. And so one of the studies that we have with one of our PhD students um, is looking at 100% ryegrass. Now just imagine that 100% ryegrass can now be a sod lifted and put into the gate. All right. Uh, that was your old advisor who required that study to be done uh, Brandon, hey, Dr. Vargas asked Jackie about a year ago, he says, I think you need to tell me how fast you can do 100% ryegrass. So she was quite excited. So was Dr. Vargas. I think he, you know, it's just counterintuitive. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't think ryegrass would be a, a viable sod option. And it may be, in a, it may end up saving us because if all of a sudden I can do one in 10 weeks, how many fields can I do in that piece of plastic, Jim, in a year? Well, and I got to think, too, the weeds guy in me thinks that's a much cleaner establishment from a POA standpoint, too, right? If you don't have the soil seed bank to deal with, you're bringing in sand on plastic, you're going to get a cleaner deliverable in the end from a weeds perspective, right? Right. right. Now, realize that this is nothing new. I mean, there, there, we've been, I don't know that you've, you know, let's just ignore the last debacle in uh phoenix but every grass field prior in the last 15 years has been on plastic the world cup that we did in 1994 that side was grown on plastic now that's 32 years ago so this is this is not new it's just not widespread is the transport of sod on plastic easier than conventional sod or no different uh probably no different um what's interesting so what, what you want to keep your eye on, uh, Jim, will be over the next couple of years is when you put the challenge, when you throw a gauntlet down to an industry, like we've kind of thrown the gauntlet down to this turf, this sod industry, they'll respond. Why? Because, you know, right now we use four foot wide rolls. 
Well, then somebody will say, well, why don't we use a six foot wide roll? Why don't we use an eight foot wide roll? And because of what we're going to end up doing, I, you know, I, I think you see these kinds of advancements and they, and they come during these times when you have these strong requirements. So I, I don't suspect that anything but the best from this industry, anything but the best. Is the is the sand is the root zone going to be a prescribed type of root zone or is it is it going to be and is it going to be a hundred percent sand or or included with other uh, soil elements or or uh, organic matter or any of those kinds of things? Well, I I, th I can't say that they won't have some you know some elements in them. Um, you know the the thing that. Um, I will say that it's going to be predominantly sand. You uh, you have to have, you still have to have the rules because, you know, ignoring the stadiums, ignoring the stadiums for now and just going to the practice fields, I, I have to have a sand base going over the top of anything so that I will not in, inhibit drainage at all. And so I can't have a layering, uh, you know, a, a, a incompatible root zone. So that that's automatic. Got to have that. And then, um, Second thing that you're going to have to have is, is um, the roots themselves will do a pretty good job initially of giving you that strength. But then, then we might need to put some stuff in some of these, but in some of these uh, um, sod farms. But it's relatively simple because you just bring it and then establish it and then uh, top dress it up until you get to a two inch layer and then you harvest it. I, you know, I say you start with an inch, but Jim, but then you quickly add that second inch and then you, you take it away. And there are people that do this very, very well. And you guys have been watching games on it for a long time. It's just getting ready to be in the vernacular, in the common vernacular, I think. Yeah. And Brandon, from the cool season standpoint, when you're establishing it from seed on plastic, you know, an, an 85, 15 and 80, 20 mix sand peat by volume, you know, you need that organic matter because that moisture on that plastic is, you know, it dries out really quick and it, you know, it's anything you can do to have that to, to aid the seed establishment is, is, is vital. Right. And I, I know you guys have talked about it before, um, just with the audience that we have. Um, I know FIFA, you know, thinks very highly of some of these stitching systems and things like that. How will how will that stitching system type of inclusion work with something that's grown on plastic? Will it be done at the sod farm or will it be done in the stadium or once the sod is laid, how does that ultimately work out? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. Yes. Um, we're getting, we're getting ready to experiment, well, but some of the stadiums, the developed or stadiums could come in, you know, Toronto's already got a stitched pitch, right? Right. So, right. Because they're the only one that's currently like basically ready to go, right? Right. If, if according to what FIFA requires, they would. They, there's three things that they really want: is a vacuum ventilation system, a way to take water in and out or provide air, um, stitching or a hybrid system, whether it's a stitched or a carpeted system, um, but a hybrid reinforced root zone, and then the third is uh, lights, having grow lights to to aid and grow. And knowing that the, a lot of these stadiums, you know, June and July, light isn't even limiting maybe in San Francisco at Levi Stadium, but it's an opportunity, again, going back to that legacy, you know, they've wanted 
lights for a long time, it's now a chance for them to have some lights that they can have in perpetuity for their, you know, the legacy that's that's there. But then here's here's the thing that that will rub you a little bit in that you know if you have a uh, take Philadelphia or anybody up there that okay we got to have stitching in those fields, but then they don't want stitching in their fields when the NFL starts. So do you rip it back out? And that stitching oftentimes goes seven or eight, 10 inches deep and kind of hard to pull out. So mm -hmm. how exactly are we going to do that? So that's part of the reason why we're trying to investigate in addition to offering the carpeting system that would just be a blanket that you would grow the grass up through, which is very simple and actually makes it easier to grow sod on plastic in my opinion. Um, or, would you come in with the stitcher while the sod was still in the farm and do a show, what's called a shallow stitch, which this is something that that, that stitching uh, industry has not done yet. They have not mastered that, so to speak. And so we're right on the edge with that as you both researchers know the cutting edge can get quite bloody. So uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're, and, then, we're... and then with that, that so then with the stitching system then um of, of those three elements right the lights the vacuum drainage you know sub air type system and the stitching what of those three what like what's the most important one you think what's the one that you could live without if you had to like what are the well where are we right are we in uh are we in new york outside are, are we in Miami or are we in uh, Atlanta? So right. this is why John and I have, from the very start, you know, our heads have been spinning about this for, you know, it's 18 months. Uh, mine, um, but everything, it's an a la carte thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was what was so amazing when we went to Qatar, John had already been there, but I, I went over there with him in November. It was cookie cutter. I mean, uh, no, they had a great World Cup. I'm not talking about that. The field played fine. Everything was growing wonderful. Got all great. But it was the same thing over and over and over. And it's like, we're not going to have any two stadiums that match up. Period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You think, Brandon, June, Ju June and July in Miami, there's good chance there's going to be a rainstorm every day at 3.30 rolling in. And so right. being a vacuum ventilation system would probably be pretty good to pull moisture out, you know, and you know, right. so but in a in a dome stadium on a on a you know flat surface with with a underlayment of some sort of padding to attenuate the the concrete so that the ball plays mm -hmm. properly and all that kind of stuff. How do you have a vacuum ventilation system in that? Great question. Great yeah. Question. These are all good questions. And then you ask, do you really need a vacuum ventilation system? Because is it going to rain in there? Yes or no, it's probably not. But what if somebody accidentally overwaters and you got to pull it out? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just telling you what FIFA, you know, these are the requirements that they keep talking about. So right. yeah. they don't like to leave anything to chance. And once they decided to get in charge, this is what they deal with. So yeah, do, does um, does Bermuda grass even needs to be stitched? That's another good question, right? Good question. There's a there's a questions. We got a couple yeah, of, of audience questions. One of them, and this was a question I had too while you guys were chatting. 
how do you harvest sod on plastic? Is it the same harvesting equipment to go in and lift that stuff? It's actually yeah, very similar. But the nice thing is about harvesting sod on plastic, and, and you'd ask this question, is there is there a difference between conventional sod? And it's the nice thing about it is you're cutting it like a pizza. You're not cutting it from below. You're not shearing any roots off. And but they do pick it up and put it on a on a conventional harvester that can pull it up, but you're not shearing any roots and then it rolls up like big roll sod normally would. Um, With the plastic and, on it? No, you no, take it, it off the plastic. You cut it off and just pick it up off the plastic. So the the, the only cutting happens for the the, the long strip, right. not underneath. You're not you're shearing not anything underneath. And then you just basically put it on the roll and then use the harvester to roll it up. Right. And then when you go lay the sod, you know, this, this was work, you know, we, we, what we saw back in, in 92 when we, we sodded the modules in the Silverdome, within 30 days, you got these fully intact roots and then gravitropism or gravity, those roots are going down. And that plant is not having to, like conventional sod where you've cut the roots off, use all that energy to grow new roots. They're just, they're just growing with gravity down. That's what roots do. And so that enables the plant to be more healthier, more durable, and, and, and ready, more mature. And so and now- is the shock, right? right? Right, and so now the big question is how durable will this plant be indoors without necessarily even putting it into a rooting system? So can we feed it? Can we water it? Will it be able to absorb that? The answer so far is yes. So, you know, I. I have an experiment going right now in Florida where you know we threw Bermuda grass overseeded with ryegrass into a garage and 11 weeks later it still looks like it's still alive and kicking. We've done nothing to it except open up the doors every once in a while. So we're into some new territory here. Yeah, for sure. There's another question. Um, that came in, do you foresee this changing the dynamics of most sod farms in their growing process going forward and changing the operational standards on how sod production is done? Hmm. That'll all come down to demand. You know, how much of these stadiums are gonna be requiring this on a bigger issue, but the ability to grow sod, you know, on plastic and like, like Trey had said, with the 100% ryegrass, well, and in 10 weeks, you can turn it around. What about the tall fescue belt? Tall fescue is another bunch type grass. Instead of using the netting, why not establish tall fescue on a, and it could be even for home lawns, but a, like a, a composted organic or home lawn a medium on plastic. You can grow tall fescue sod on plastic and have every 10 weeks rotating a new crop on a field. That's, that's a tremendous way to, to do it, especially in, in local or smaller areas to urban areas. So I think that's, that's where we might see changes. Five years ago, Five years ago, I wrote a grant and it wasn't funded, um, sometimes a little ahead of our time, but because um, I said, well, I'd like to use the um, parking lots of these old malls to grow sod on plastic in these urban areas. And then every spring have something for them to come get back the truck up and get it. And uh, what would that, you know, because we're not using any soil from, from agriculture, anything along those lines, and but it wasn't funded. But that this is what the spinoffs are here from. You'll see this. You'll see this kind of stuff happen. Well, in, in going back to the weed control front, I mean, if you have a cleaner deliverable and you're not bringing that soil seed bank along with you, 
there's a market out there for for yeah. for that to to be sold across you know outside of sports turf just in sod in general i mean yeah. we have plenty of golf courses that have gone undergone regrassing or renovation in this region that are dealing with some new weed issues and new disease issues brandon i gotta think there's some soil pathogens that might come along with sod along with uh you know poa seed and goosegrass seed and all the rest of it and if we can have and a bluegrass weed yeah a protocol that keeps that cleaner I, I could see it changing yeah it seems to me that that the the spin-offs of being able to produce a significant quantity of sod on plastic has applications you know to Jim's point, golf courses, regrassing a, a green surface where typically you don't think of sod being the ideal way to do it. That if you had a clean uh, root zone that 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 root zone matched up with the root zone that you had in place and you could you could go in, you could change over a, 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 a green surface very, very quickly um, with with minimal disruption to play, really. Yeah, see, that's the other thing we haven't really talked about, Jim and Brandon, is the instant playability of sod on plastic. And that is because you're preparing it on a flat surface, you're controlling the top dressing, you're giving yourself a very, very smooth surface. Whenever you cut conventional in a sod farm, it, you all know that as good as a job as a thing does, it still comes in a little uneven, a little bumpy, and it's got to be top dressed. So really what we're doing with this is we're putting all the pressure on the sod farm to deliver a playable field to the stadium or to the to the area. And that'd be the same thing that you're talking about for the putting green. And that's one of the reasons why they would just love it. One of the things we haven't talked about is the price. Um, sod on plastic is about a 10x over conventional right now. But that's because of the market. I mean, who knows yeah. what, what it'll be, could it be eventually? But and, and Brandon, I've been thinking about this a long time, all the way back to my master's, if you remember. I did, my yeah. master's degree was growing sod on plastic. And, uh, you know, in another century, let's just say. But, um, you know, I've been thinking about this a long time. There's a, there's a, I've worked with a lot of golf courses and some golf courses that come in. Why couldn't they have a nursery of sod on plastic and they grow it? And it's not so much for the greens. But the driving range tee, the par three tee boxes, you got these golf courses that have really small driving range tees that get beaten up and they're always hitting off the mats. But if you've got an area or a parking lot where you're growing sod on plastic and you can come in and, it, and Trey says it's instantly playable, they're hitting off it the next day. That's, that's pretty good. And with the technology coming in with a coral, coraling it off, putting out the big roll sod, putting it up, you can do that, side kick it in in a, in, in, in a couple hours. This is why the students are, you know, they, if they're listening to this right now, the graduate students, the technicians, this is their research. You know, it, one thing one thing is to apply it to what we're getting ready to do for the World Cup. The second thing is to be able to kick it forward as we move down and, and leave the World Cup after 2026. Yeah, for sure. Another question that came in, uh, how are damaged sock sections of sod on plastic changed on the field is it fixed the same way as regular sod would be yeah i mean you just go and cut it out if you had a damaged area you'd need to go if you had to think if, if that had to be done now if it's a stitch system or something like that you've got to be careful how you you take it out but the system would be is i think they removed some stuff in qatar and put it back in and stitched it they had some small stitching units so they they you know that kind of thing is uh been thought up and being used right now in Europe, I think, in some areas. Yeah. 
and, and then the lessons are to be learned, you know, a lot of it is accessibility to these stadiums during World Cup and things like that, because there's the LED boards and media. So being able to have a equipment to get in and renovate something that if there was needed, it could be done. And, that, and that's Alan Ferguson with FIFA has been thinking about all these as he's as he's learned the last two World Cups that he's done. Yeah, that's a name. That's a name that the uh, United States uh, turf industry will hear a lot over the next few years. And he's a fantastic individual, Alan Ferguson, um, and he kind of is head of uh, FIFA's pitch uh, management team, and um, from England, John's friend, but from Scotland, Alan. Scotland. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> England. <laughs> he, he's now mad at me, but. Uh, <laughs> But he, but he, fantastic individual, fantastic individual. But and John and I are lucky to work with him only because he's the most of the time when you're working with these big entities, you don't have that person immediately above you that's a turf person, but this person is. So that's been important. Trey, you mentioned the grad students that are involved. Is a foreign language part of the degree program now? Because I got to think with the diversity of, of geography you're going to go to and the training that's going to have to be done. I mean, there's going to be some language barriers, right, that are going to have to be uh, crossed in order to get the growers in all different parts of the world to follow the protocols that you're developing. Well, we have two research technicians. We have Ryan Beers at Michigan State and Reese Fielder at the University of Tennessee. And John can comment on this, but Reese Fielder is, is leading a team uh, of Tennessee and Michigan State students down to Mexico. And how many uh, Spanish-speaking people are we on? Are on that team, John? Two. Yeah. So um, we 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 have two, and, and and then we have a couple of others that uh, are novices. But everybody's is going to pick up, I think. Well, and then what about in the you know you talked in the beginning about forty-eight countries and each with a training pitch and the referees that have their own pitch. I mean, is there the growth of sod going to happen in those? 48 countries too, or just the the geographical footprint where the actual World Cup will happen? Well, you know, you have 48 countries, right, that are coming here and uh, their expectations are to play. Now, you know, what what kind of uh, field that they have that they're coming off of is a, is a completely different story. Um, but it's, we're just focusing right now on the on the fields that we, you know, on the field that we need to get ready. Um, we can talk about the fact that there'll be another World Cup in 2030, there'll be a Women's World Cup in 2027, and we hear all kinds of rumors about involvement in that, but uh, one of us is getting a little older. So I don't know how much longer I'll be around for all that stuff. And that's for our YouTube viewers to guess which one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting older too. Getting We're all older. getting older. We're all getting older every minute. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm going to put up our GCSAA points. And then again, this is only for golf course superintendents. This has nothing to do with pesticide accreditation. But for those that are interested in GCSAA um, uh, CEUs from the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, this is your event approval code right here that you will enter into the GCSAA website. If you are watching this on YouTube as a recording, uh, you want to make sure that when you enter it, you put today's event date. 
Uh, and those that may be listening to this via podcast, if you need this information, you can email me and I will uh, send it to you for upload at that time. But I will leave this here uh, for a few minutes while uh, to uh, go back in the day from uh, uh, the sports reporters for any parting shots that you might have. Um, but before we do that, um, we have one more question here. Um, do you see any pushback from environmental agencies due to the amount of plastic being used with this method of growing sod? Could that be one reason why growing sod on plastic isn't as prominent as it is? Any thoughts on that before we segue out, gentlemen? Well, the plastic can be reused. And so that part, you know, does have that um, potential. And then um, at the same time, um, I think that um, once you begin to, you have to think about this and from a, from a standpoint of this is the initial way we're doing this. And if we can just somehow get sod on an impermeable layer, does it have to be plastic? And all of us have done enough research to know how things start and how they end up at, at the at the end of it. So that was a good that's a very good question. And I do think it'll change down the road. But you could envision a like I like just right off the top of my head, it's it's interesting that you say that, Trey. I mean, I just it just popped into my head like why why couldn't you have a stadium surface or a sod production surface that's capillary concrete? Right. right. Like, and and you have the in a stadium if you had capillary concrete or permeable concrete then you could have a drainage system that's there that you could roll out other surfaces across the top and whether that's a grass surface for sports and then you roll it up and put a, a hard surface over it for some other event and then come back you know but you have that rise. i mean las vegas and all these new stadiums that are coming on don't be surprised Right. And then and then certainly for a production standpoint, like you were saying about old malls, you could very easily envision, you know, areas that are used for production that have this permeable surface that's not plastic per se, but is some other surface that allows you to, you know, cut the sod horizontally and then roll it up and start again, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and Brandon, that's, you know, the, that's exactly what they do in Singapore. It's, you know, they've got three pitches for their national stadium that I've worked with for the last five, six years. And they're on it. They're on concrete. They're not on a plastic. So they're on an impermeable layer. And that was like when Trey and I were in, in at TPI in Nashville with all the sod producers, they're like, can we stop calling it sod over plastic? Because they don't like the word plastic, the sod producers at all. They're like, can we just come up with another name, not sod on plastic or sod? You know, it's like sod over an impermeable layer. You know, it's like that or barrier. Sure. Because it doesn't, yeah, it could be whatever for sure. Yeah, because you, I mean, you need a new name. We'll call it Ciroc and Turf or something. That'd be <laughs> I mean, you could, you could easily see uh, a, you, we already have bunkers that have capillary concrete and right. others, mm -hmm. you know, liners in them. You could easily see that sand being there and then just having a grass surface on top of it you top dress up you pick it up roll it up and off you go again right right yeah you just have to worry about whether or not it roots into it but it, there's still it's a lot of good questions like all good research projects they lead to more research right amen well let's let's leave it well i was going to leave it there but we got one one more question um 
says, uh, how about hydro hydroponic turf? Is that something that we could do for uh, for the World Cup? My guess is probably no. Probably not. No, not the way we've all the work we've done on hydroponics, but it's a good way to do research on things. But that'd be a really big hydroponic container for the amount of acreage you need. And ten the price is probably low for what hydroponic would run you. Well, and the, and the trick to this whole thing, what we didn't mention was, you know, all of these stadiums that are in the United States, they're not soccer stadiums. They're NFL football stadiums. So that means they're having to be retrofitted. So, and the, the idea here is to not see how much money you can spend, but how little money you can spend. And right. get the, so this idea of bringing the sod on plastic, putting it on a shallow profile in these eight stadiums that don't have grass, we know we could do a modular field. That's simple. It's not, it's, but it's expensive. So the question is, can you use this big roll technology, sod on plastic, and answer this question without breaking the bank? And keeping that shallow profile, as Trey mentioned, so you don't lose a row of seats, because that's right. a lot of those, because those are the expensive seats, club level, field level, club seats, and things like that. You could come in with a modular system, but then all of a sudden your sight lines have changed and you lose a front row of seats. Probably should have said that at the beginning of the podcast, but you know, kind of a rookie. Yeah. Okay. We got uh, we had one of our our extension colleagues here, an agent from Middle Tennessee, share with us at the end. He's the 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 branding for sod on plastic moving forward. That soil, the word soil is an acronym for sod over impermeable layer, which I thought oh, was pretty classy. beautiful. <laughs> Let's leave it there, gentlemen. I appreciate the time. And, and you join in our show today. We'll let everybody get off to lunch. We will be back uh, the first week of June for a discussion about diseases and disease control. Dr. Horvath's going to play QB1 on that. Uh, so until next time, uh, enjoy the rest of your day.